Good morning. Ooh, that's hot. Hot. Y'all ready for this? I am. Um, so, yeah, it's football season. And uh, tragically, it will end soon. Very tragically. Hopefully with the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl win. Um, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, uh, but maybe you're watching a game in a living room with your friends and family, and there happens to be uh, fans of both teams in the same room. And so they're cheering for opposing teams, and uh, then a controversial call is made by the refs. So say it was a fumble recovery at the uh, out-of-bounds sideline. They go to instant replay, and they're showing the play a million times from a million different angles in slow motion, have you ever noticed you watch the whole game of football in slow motion as well as like normal motion? It's crazy. Every play is this way. Anyway, um, and as a fans from opposing sides watch the replay, one says, oh man, that's a fumble. That was clearly a fumble. Clearly. The other side says, no, he was out of bounds before he fumbled it. Clearly out of bounds. Right? Uh, I mean, like they're watching the same replays. Over and over, same exact replays, different angles, coming up with exact opposite conclusions. Uh, And it's basketball season, and oh my gosh, you see that a ton with basketball too. But why? Why come up with opposite conclusions when they're watching the same exact replay? And I think we already know, because there's a bias Some really, really, really want it to be a fumble, and so that's what they see. Others really, really, really want it not to be a fumble, and so that is what they see. It's humorous how really ridiculous we can be and how fickle we can be. I've never been there, by the way. Um, But in all seriousness, uh, this doesn't just happen when we're watching football or any other sport. It happens all the time. Time. We have a nature within us that really just wants to see things the way we want to see them. We have a nature within us that fights to interpret everything to our own advantage. Circumstances, relationships, arguments, situations. We have a power living within us that we're not necessarily in control of, that causes us to manipulate or even suppress objective facts in order to benefit ourselves. A lot of times, we're not even aware of this. And I don't know about you, but this is somewhat frightening to me, that I have the ability to convince myself of things that aren't true or twist things in order to always build myself up. Uh, And so the question that I need to know is, is it hopeless? You know, am I just going to be deceiving myself throughout life in order to always be right in an argument, for example? Or always have a, a subtle sense of superiority over other people? And so although not obvious at first, uh, these couple verses that we'll be looking at today surface this problem that we have, and we'll look at what the Bible in its entirety 
says about a solution. And so Romans 1, um, I will have it up on the screen. I forgot to check what page it is in the Pew Bible. Uh, This is in um, CSB, Christian Standard Bible. So it'll be different than your Pew Bible, but just by a couple words. Romans 1, verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. And so just a little context here. Paul is writing to the Romans, the people, the the church in Italy, Rome. Uh, The letter is considered, quote, the fullest expression of Paul's theology. And uh, likely he was writing, addressing uh, the Romans with particular issues, um, the kind of topics and issues that a church that included both Jewish and Gentile Christians would have. And really um, issues that suggest that there were tensions between uh, the two, between the Gentiles and Jews in their church. Uh, And so this section, Romans 1, 18 to 32, is talking about the unrighteousness of the Gentiles. The next section in the letter, um, all of chapter 2, some of 3, is talking about the unrighteousness of the Jews. And Paul is trying to level the playing field. Uh, Everyone has unrighteousness. Uh, Jews and Gentiles alike. When when he addresses the Jews, it's not the immorality necessarily that he addresses with the Gentiles. It's the self-righteousness and judgmentalness of the Jews. But the reason he needs to level the playing field is because humanity, we all inevitably move toward feeling superior to others unless we are checked. That's the reality. And so this morning is another check. So let's go through these verses slowly. Verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This verse in particular is why I chose to study these uh, few verses, and I'll get into that. But a couple things we learn about God here. One, God has wrath, which means he has anger, he is agitated by mankind's sin, he has violent passion and emotion concerning sin. It's not just a slap on the wrist. Violent passion and emotion concerning sin. Second thing we learn about God here is that he reveals his wrath. He doesn't keep it hidden. It means to uncover it. He discloses it. He makes it known. And one way that he reveals his wrath is in the simple gospel message. This verse 18 comes right after Paul says in 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And then in the same breath, next verse, he says the wrath of God is also being revealed. The gospel reveals both the righteousness that God requires and it also reveals his wrath. And so how? 
how does it reveal his wrath too? Because we all have sin, which the payment is death. Once again, it's not just a slap on the wrist, it's death. But Jesus paid for our sin by dying on the cross. He took the death that we owed and he paid it for us. He took on our unrighteousness. Think of the last evil thing that you said or act that you committed. Jesus took it on the cross. When God sees you, he sees that act or that word spoken on Jesus, not you. That's crazy. It's, the, it's, it's just called the um, great exchange. He took on our unrighteousness. We receive his righteousness. That's how both the righteousness of God is revealed and the wrath of God is revealed because whoever rejects the son rejects the father and will experience the wrath of God on their sin. Either Jesus takes the wrath of God for your sin or you do. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to take the wrath of God on my sin. And so I will trust in Jesus to take that wrath. It's amazing. Verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people. Uh, Commentary says it this way, godlessness speaks of man's relation to God. It's an absence of reverence toward God. And unrighteousness speaks of man's relationship with fellow man. And so that word means wickedness or injustice, like that of a judge. And so together, these two words, godlessness and unrighteousness, show our failure to love God and love others as we should, which are the two greatest commandments. Um, By the way, tangent, these are the two greatest commandments. These aren't the central message of Christianity. We kind of get that confused, and I heard it all the time talking to students who even grew up in the church all the time with non-Christians. They'd say, yeah, the central message is basically loving God, loving others. That's not the central message. Those are, in fact, the two things that condemn us. They are the first part of the central message of Christianity because we don't love God and we don't love others. It's the first part. It condemns us. And the good news, which is the central message of Christianity, is that Jesus has come to pay for our sin. Amen. But now we get to the part of the verse uh, that I took particular uh, interest in why I chose to study it. So, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And I really take interest in this because Paul doesn't say here that they don't believe the truth. It says they suppress the truth. That word suppress means to hold back, like in the Greek, to hold back, detain, restrain, keep firm possession of. And so Paul is talking about a people knowing the truth but pushing it out of mind, out of sight. People knowing the truth, but hard-heartedly keeping a tight fist around it, lock it away in some dark recess of the soul so that they can live how they want to live. Um, Another way to say it is they suppress the objective, factual truth by their subjective, willful desires and actions. It says, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. 
And so here's the principle, is our intellect follows our will. Our intellect follows our will. These people that Paul is talking about, the way they interpret reality intellectually is determined by what they want and not just based on unbiased observation. And so, and I'll come back to this, determined by what they want, not just by unbiased observation. And then it says, the wrath of God is revealed against people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. And just a little meditation once again on these words, evident in this verse 19 means apparent, plain, visible, thoroughly understood. Paul is describing a people that has the ability to see something obvious and clear, but convince themselves otherwise. Verse 20 goes on, For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. And so looking at 18 to 20, 18 says the wrath of God is coming on people. Verse 19 answers why the wrath of God is coming on people, because God has made the truth plain to them. Verse 20 tells how God has made himself plain to them uh, through, quote, what has been made, creation. Literally, it means God's workmanship. And then verse 20 also says, God's qualities have been, quote, clearly seen, which means to see thoroughly, perceive clearly, to behold fully. It's a little paradox if you see in that verse two, it says um, God's invisible attributes, that means we can't see them, have actually been demonstrated so that we can see clearly. Just a little paradox. Um, it's indisputable. Indisputable, they, they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. It's not that there's insufficient evidence of God or the truth. Uh, and we see this present day, of course, do we not? Oh boy. <laughs> that went down the wrong pipe. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, hey. Uh, yeah, so when I've asked non-Christians on campus about spiritual things, a uh, lot of conversations, the number one reason students almost always describe as the reason they don't believe in God is, is intellectual, uh, because they, they, they believe in science or because they need hard evidence and there just isn't any. They are convinced that their denial of God is because of respectable intellectual reasons. That's why. But once again, what does Scripture say? It says they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. In other words, everyone actually does know that God exists. But they shove that truth down and say things like, there's not enough evidence for God, and so I'm going to live the way that I want to. And they have it backwards. They want to live the way they want to, and so they conclude that there's not enough evidence. 
Atheists and agnostics reject God ultimately because of the, their will, like what they want, not because of respectable intellectual reasons. But yeah, in my experience, basically none of them admit to this. Uh, they have thoroughly convinced themselves otherwise, and so rarely uh, do they admit that they don't believe in God because they just want to live how they want to live or because they don't want to submit to an authority uh, other than themselves in li- life or um, because they don't want to submit to objective moral standards. If they were to admit those things, it would be a little too exposing. Um, and to be clear here, uh, it's the atheist agnostics subconscious that 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 knows there's a God. In their consciousness, they are convinced that there's no God um, or that the existence of God just can't be known for sure in the case of agnostics. And so they use the respect where the, uh, you know, there's not enough evidence. And, and most atheists and, and agnostics that I've talked to, um, they don't even say it obstinately or arrogantly, actually. It's just that, that, that that's what makes sense to them. There's just no evidence, period. And once again, it's because their will is speaking and not unbiased observation. Um, and this is where God has been blowing my mind the past couple months, um, where I'm seeing the evidence so clearly through what has been made. Um, and it's the type of, I don't know, just seeing things clearly that you just can't put into words but I'll try to put it a little bit in words. There is plain as day evidence that, that there is a creator. Um, I've always known that, of course, but, but I've been really feeling it lately, and it just brings me to worship, and it brings me to the fear of God. It is obvious that there's a creator of all that is to all humanity. It is obvious. The first reason that it's been hitting me deeply is just the question of why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? It's the age-old philosophical question. Here we are on this beautiful planet, like floating in space, orbiting around a really bright, hot star that burns continually, gives us heat and energy. Here we are with moral decisions to make and lives to live and children to bring up questioning our purpose and questioning like why we're here. Like where did this all come from? Where did everything come from? The stars and the galaxies. Why isn't there instead just absolute nothingness? And if you go down that trail of like thinking of like what does that even, what is that absolute nothingness? What if there was no God and absolutely nothing created? What would there be? I, I get I could start to spiral quick and my head explodes. The most popular theory is the Big Bang Theory. But there's something crazy about this Big Bang Theory that I never knew before. And, and I, don't, I don't know if they emphasize this in the textbooks. I've never, well, I never remember learning it. Someone can let me know if they in fact do. But even atheistic cosmologists, scientists, astrophysicists consider the Big Bang to be not just a big explosion, but a creation event. Like where space, time, matter, and energy began, created, 
Not just a big explosion, the creation event. Did you know that? I didn't know that until a couple years ago in my graduate course. The theory is that that is when space, time, matter, and energy were created. From what? Who knows? Is the conclusion, but they acknowledge that. And it's no wonder why they acknowledge that. It's no wonder why they consider it the beginning of space, time, matter, and energy, because you cannot escape the reality that there's no way that there was an infinite past. Okay, we're just getting a little philosophical here, but I love this stuff. Might want to put your seatbelts on for it. I get jacked up about this stuff. They acknowledge that there must be a beginning of time. Like, time has not always existed. And here's why, a couple reasons. Check this out. If time is a succession of moments, which it is, one moment after the other, and if there is an infinite succession of moments prior to this very moment that we're living in, we would have never arrived at this moment. The past literally would have not ever been completed to arrive here in this moment. Because if it's an infinite past and an infinite succession of moments, we would never have arrived at this moment. That's one reason why they conclude there was a creation event of some kind. And then a little more to science is the thermodynamics of the universe. And so if the universe is infinitely old, then it would have already ran out, like, of all usable energy. It's called entropy equilibrium would have been reached. In other words, all stars would be dead and cold, burnt out, everything pitch black in the universe spent, done. Like, it doesn't even make sense because there's without a beginning of time, but like a long time ago. And so atheists conclude, once again, that the universe had to have a beginning. There has to be a way that the stars are still burning bright. Because they are, and there is life. And not only is there life, but there's also sophisticated life. And not only sophisticated life, but there is love and peace and joy and pleasures and moral dilemmas. And not only are there those things, but there were prophets and miracles breaking through the mundane in our very, very, very short human history. And there was Jesus, the climax so far of God showing us who he is in indisputable ways by what he said and what he did and by you know, the climax of him raising himself back from the dead. Students are always saying, you know, um, yeah, I need hard evidence to believe in God. Well, how much harder evidence do you need than Jesus coming in the flesh, what he said, what he did? How much harder evidence do you need than just looking at all things that have been created, all creation that exists in this moment of time? Romans 1 is saying that this, us, we are hard evidence we are hard evidence. There is a God. It's called general revelation. There is a God. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows it. 
God has been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so people are without excuse. General revelation of God revealing himself to us through what has been made is enough to condemn people. Why? Because our sin condemns us. Our sin condemns us. And so Jesus and God also doesn't just reveal himself through general revelation. Condemnation comes through general revelation. But then there's what's called special revelation. When I just mentioned about where God broke through through prophets, miracles, Jesus, it's special revelation. It's when we proclaim the gospel, salvation comes through special revelation, through us telling others. You can't be saved through general revelation. Salvation, as Romans 10 says, comes through the preaching of his word. How else will they be saved unless someone is sent to preach? So just a couple implications of this. When it comes to evangelism, and then I'll get how into like how it applies to us personally as Christ followers, if you are one. Um, in evangelism, like I try to gently move students from their, uh, the, those intellectual smoke screens to the real reason that they don't believe. Um, usually, once again, of course, they think it's intellectual, but it's really that they don't believe because they don't want to believe. They don't want to accept the implications. It's about their will, and I try to gently help them to see that. Um, second thing with evangelism, uh, what this all means is that we can't convince people intellectually until their hearts are also ready. It's, it's not just about apologetics because they're going to just suppress those with their heart, with their will. They'll explain it away like a fan watching an instant replay. They'll see whatever they want. And obviously, apologetics do have value um, because they really actually do serve to cancel out those intellectual objections one by one, which can help a person see the real reason they don't believe. And so they have value. I've definitely seen God use apologetics to bring people uh, to himself, but ultimately it's about their will, it's about their heart. And so um, how does this apply to us as believers, if you are one? Um, We can't just look at the world and point our finger at them for doing this. The same sin nature that moves non-Christians to suppress the truth with their will lives in us. We also have the ability to see something obvious and clear but convince ourselves otherwise. We have a nature within us, once again, in us ourselves as well, to interpret everything, everything to our own advantage, circumstances, relationships, arguments, situations, world events, everything. But I think one of the biggest ways this is seen is in conflict with others. It starts in your home and in your family. I mean, that's where we have most of our conflicts, right? We usually can come up with uh, persuasive reasons why we are right and others are wrong. For example, basically in any kind of conflict, any kind of conflict with another person or a disagreement, tempted to spin any conflict favorably toward who? Toward ourselves where we're in the right and the other person is in the wrong, it's a bias in our will that 
affects how we intellectually see things, a bias in our will to defend ourselves, a bias in our will to rationalize and deceive ourselves into thinking, you know, our problems are always someone else's fault, something else's fault. Our intellect follows our will. Our deepest desires are in the driver's seat. And I can feel it. I can feel it in arguments with my wife. I I always have a bias that I'm right and she's wrong. That's always the starting bias. It's like, well, I know she's wrong, but let me try to understand. I have a bias to defend my, my competency. You know, it wasn't the fast food restaurant that got our order wrong. It was because, uh, or, or sorry, it was because the fast food um, restaurant got our order wrong. It, it wasn't because I uh, didn't check to make sure everything was there. It's all them. I have a bias to defend my righteousness, and it's disgusting. Non-Christians suppress what is clear and true because of their desire to do evil things. Religious people can suppress what is clear and true because of our desire to be pridefully good and superior to others. How we can even use scripture against others in such a way that it just happens to build ourselves up and make ourselves feel superior and convince ourselves that we're more righteous We must be on our guard. It's not just the atheists and agnostics that are at risk. It's us who claim to be Christians too. And so let this morning be an opportunity for confession and repentance and self-awareness. You don't have to guess if the person next to you um, struggles with this. We all struggle with this. My wife and I just uh, marked 18 years of marriage, and I just praise God for his gospel. Um, It it has empowered us to apologize to each other. Since we've individually experienced the deep, deep mercy of God, we've been able to see our own sinful side of the arguments and not just operate with that selfish bias because we're not fighting to maintain our righteousness anymore anymore. We already have it in Christ and so we're set free to see ourselves as we really are and not just how we want to see ourselves. And is it easy? No, and I fail often at this, often, especially in marriage. Every day I have to fight this part of my sin nature that always wants to be right, that always wants to defend my competency, my my righteousness, it's, it's why I always counsel Christian students, if you're going to marry someone, make sure they are a Christ follower because only a Christ follower will be able to see themselves as they are and not just with a prideful bias, especially down the road when the going gets tough. The gospel, the righteousness of God that's been revealed can guard us from this deep-rooted bias within us that always wants to spin things in our favor. And we don't have to fight that fact that we're sinful when we know we're forgiven. And we we don't have to fight the fact that we're unrighteous when we know we're righteous in Christ. And so final statement, and then I'll pray here. Um, Once again, the gospel sets us free to see ourselves as we really are and not just how we want to see ourselves. 
Lord God, you are God, you are creator. Help us to bow down in fear of you. You are present here. You aren't what is created, but you are displayed through everything that is created. Lord, you made your existence plain to us, and I thank you for that. Roman, or Psalm 19, the heavens declare your glory. The skies proclaim the work of your hands. We pray that more people would be disarmed by your gospel in order to see things as they are, that you are their creator. And God, help us to really live out the gospel because we fail so often so that we will see ourselves as we really are and not just how we want to see ourselves. God, that, that our relationships beginning in our families and in this church even too, that our relationships, God, would show the world that you are real and that they would know that we are your disciples by our love for each other. So help us, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.